everybody, Mike here. Good day to you, or good night to you, whenever it is you're listening, however it is you're listening. So grateful to be a part of your life and uh, play a small part in your journey. Welcome to the Vox Podcast. Again, just a reminder, um, we are in the business of helping people thoughtfully deconstruct and reconstruct their faith. Um, these days, there are lots and lots of great big questions and things that are pe- that people are wrestling with, and uh, it feels like all of that has been accelerated and amplified by social media, and so we think there is a, a spot uh, for people having these sorts of conversations around these sorts of topics. Uh, we're trying to get through some some talk on politics, um, and, and before I, I dive in, I just again want to say, uh, and I know I say it every week, but but thank you to those of you who like and subscribe us and review us on iTunes. That's huge, huge, huge. Uh, that keeps. Um, it keeps iTunes aware of us and uh, hel- helps people to find us. Uh, for those of you supporting us on Patreon, I cannot, I cannot just simply thank you enough um, for that and for our new Patreon supporters. Welcome, uh, and then, and then, lastly, just so grateful for your feedback, your questions. Um, I'll probably do a question episode next episode just because we've got a lot of really, really good stuff kind of accumulating. So um, before we were so rudely interrupted by my SD card running out of memory last week, um, I was in the middle of trying to paint a picture about how faith and politics are to be reconciled in, in, a, in a Christian kind of way. Um, and we were t- using the Apostle Paul and his journey as an example, now remember politics, of course, is just talking about our ordering, uh, the ordering of our social life together. Uh, it deals with something called a polis, which is uh, uh, some sort of community or group, um, usually geographically defined. We, um, uh, and, and so at that basic sense, you know, a, a lot of what Paul was preaching in the announcement that Jesus is Lord, I mean, that that very clearly had political implications. Now, what we want to set up and where we got interrupted uh, last week um, is is we were trying to set up, and, and, and I'm taking this from a guy named Tim Gombas, the, the thoughts of Saul the Pharisee and how he would have seen salvation in politics and those sorts of things. And then, and then very famously in the book of Acts, um, he meets the risen Jesus, he's blinded for three days, gets thrown off of his donkey. Um, and, uh, and, and, and all of a sudden he still, he still has the same zeal. Um, but now he's reorienting himself around the reality that there's this Jesus that has to be contended with. And, um, and as, and, and so he engages now in political talk much differently than he did as a Pharisee. So what I'm trying to do is trying to set up his, his thought life, the way he would have understood the world as best we can reckon from, uh, from the Old Testament scriptures, from you know writings of, of uh, the day, from what we know about Pharisees and so on. And, and so we're trying to reconstruct his uh, political imagination um, so that we can show when he meets this Jesus, uh, so that we can show when he meets Jesus um, how differently and how similar his political imagination becomes expressed. So there, there are huge similarities between how Paul is going to understand uh, the work of Jesus in the world before 
you know, or after he uh, comes to know this Jesus. But there are some big differences too. And it's those differences that I think will be really enlightening for us. So if you'll trust me, we, we will pick up where we left off. And I'm just doing a lot of monologuing about Paul's sort of um, narrative imagination around politics. Where we left off, was was in the so we talked about the creation of Israel or the creation of the world, the the choosing of Israel as a light to the nations, um, and they were given a kind of a job description. They were a polis in the in the nations of the world. They were very the Old Testament law is incredibly political, about how judgments are rendered and about how social uh, transactions are to take place and about justice and economics. I mean, it's very very ordering of social relationships. And, um, and, and the, there was a, a domestic foreign policy that God intended for them, and that is summed up by the word holy, that they were to be distinct from the nations in the way they ate and what they wore and uh, how they dealt with the poor, how they, how they conducted war. I mean, all of those things were to be very, very different and distinct. And the, and, and the reason for that internal foreign policy or internal domestic policy was to create a foreign policy that was attractive, that the nations would be drawn to the God of Israel because of Israel's public life together. And, um, and, and this required for Israel unbelievable uh, trust and faith in their God. Because particularly in foreign policy, I mean, very often battles were fought where God would say, okay, you got, you got too much, you got too many guys here. So let's take 33,000 of you, let's get rid of all but 300 of you, and then we'll go attack this like amazingly huge force of the Midianites. This happens in the book of Judges, or there are battles in the book of Numbers where um, you know, Israel wasn't, they didn't do anything warlike, uh, they just would obey some random, seemingly odd command from God, and their enemies would be terrorized. Or, you know, they defeat the, bat, the city of Jericho uh, by just marching around it seven times. I mean, God, God placed them in positions of such weakness and vulnerability to continually show them that he was their strength, he was uh, their warrior, he was their advocate. And, um, and so, so this was hard for Israel, and uh, it would be hard for us too, no question about it. If, if God called us to lay down all of our guns, to lay down our military, to lay down our police force, and to trust that he would provide and take care for us, I think a lot of us would wrestle with those realities. And so, not surprisingly, Israel fails to live up to her vocation, not only in foreign policy matters, but in domestic policy as well. Now, again, I'm using purposely political language, even though it's not used that way in the Old Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures, simply because... Um, I, I, I want us to engage with this big story and realize it's, it's loaded with political language from its very beginning. We've separated uh, the idea of politics from the ordering of our social life together. and We've made it and, and packed it with all this weird American stuff that we do in the 21st century. And, um, and so I think Paul thought very much in political terms. In fact, what happens because of Israel's failure as they get sent into exile, they are forcibly removed. The, the northern ten tribes earlier than the southern tribes, but the northern kingdom goes into exile and never returns. The southern tribes, or tribe and a half, or two and a half tribes, depending on how you count, um, uh, get sent into Babylon and they return 70 years later. But they're exiled precisely because 
they did not fulfill the vocation that God had given to her. So instead of being a light to the nations, they wanted to be like the nations. So that, that starts very early in the Israel story with their desire to, be a, to have a king. Instead of uh, Yahweh as their king, they wanted a, an earthly king. They wanted to trust in chariots and warriors and armies and in counting their population size and in human strategy and so on. Rather than cultivating a politics of holiness, um, they mimicked you know, and imitated the corrupt practices of uh, their neighbors, right? So they were just as corrupt in their politics and their economics and their social practices. Instead of taking care of the poor, the poor were exploded by the rich. Um, they, they, were, uh, they, they practiced injustice and the exploitation of the vulnerable. They adopted the worship of the gods of other nations. Um, they did not, you know, so they were not holy, first of all, internally. Um, and then secondly, they, um, they not only didn't trust in God for their protection, but they adopted um, a, a posture towards outsiders that was the very opposite of they're supposed to love them and serve them and welcome them and attract them into the worship of Yahweh. Instead, it was very much a, um, an arrogance, a judgment, a pejorative kind of relation, an adversarial relationship between Israel and uh, the nations, at least in some of the Hebrew scriptures, it comes off that way. And they imagined that God, you know, was this same way towards uh, outsiders as well. So, so they get sent into exile because of their failure to fulfill the mission God had given to them. But even in exile, and this is what's interesting, even in exile, they were to, to they were to stay uh, this kind of people. They they were to maintain almost a political vision of holiness. They were to stick together and become a polis within the polis. So the northern tribes had been scattered throughout the nations. Uh, the southern tribes now all went to Babylon together. And there's this incredible letter in the book of Jeremiah, of course, where they literally are to seek the blessing of the city they find themselves in. They're to be like literally a body politic in the midst of these big other kingdoms. Um, and they were to continue to, their, to to maintain their distinctive practices, to take care of the poor and the weak and the vulnerable, to maintain humility and the true worship of the one God. Um, it, it, so, so, so for them, residence in the land, the promised land, was a political thing. Exile from the land happened for theological and political reasons. Therefore, the hope that they had was also political because what God did while the people were in exile is that God began to speak to them in terms of a new exodus. Remember, exodus, the first exodus was... was um, where God, through Moses and Aaron, rescued the nation of Israel uh, from their slavery in Egypt and, um, and formed them. And so the, 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 their imagination of salvation was shaped, was exodus-shaped. Because, um, and, and it was not just theological in the sense that they could now be free to worship God, but it was political too. They were now an independent nation. They were uh, self-governing and autonomous and, you know, so on, so on, so on. And so the prophets began to speak of a new exodus, a new covenant that God was going to make. Isaiah, the second part of Isaiah 
new Exodus imagery is all over the second part of Isaiah. Um, you've got new covenant imagery in the book of Jeremiah where God's going to give his people a new heart. Um, the law will be written on their hearts instead of written in tablets of stone. They would finally be the just community that God had always intended them to be. And the nations would flood to Jerusalem to seek the wisdom of the Lord and his glory would fill the earth as the waters fill the sea. I mean, it's just in, these incredible, incredible pictures were given to Israel while they were in exile. But their hope, and this is the really important point, not only in exile, but after the, um, their return from exile, their, their hope was political. And what I mean by that, their hope wasn't in some salvation in the future. Their hope was in um, that something would happen now to their social life together. It was a restored uh, kingdom of Israel, if you will, a restored body politic of Israel. And this this expectation shaped Jewish imaginations uh, in, in the first century like crazy. And you can see this even towards the end of the Old Testament Book of Ezra, or <laughs> Book of Ezra and Nehemiah, or as I call them, Ezariah. <laughs> uh, you can see this. There was this this dream again of of rebuilding the temple and rebuilding the walls and and protecting itself from from its enemies and seeing seeing Israel's oppressors thrown down and Israel vindicated in the sight of the nations. I mean, this was very very political stuff for them. Um, salvation and redemption, they weren't just, hey, here's your ticket to heaven someday when you die. No, no, no. It was about the nation, the body politic of Israel being vindicated in the sight of the other nations. Their redemption was thought of in political terms. They wanted freedom, even though in the first century they lived under the oppression of Rome. They wanted freedom from oppression. They wanted the installation of righteous leaders, not corrupt leaders. They wanted a society of justice and compassion. And, and all of this it was summed up by the simple Hebrew word shalom. That's what they longed for. The, the, the ordering, the right ordering of society in a way that promotes flourishing for all um, and, and comes from God's presence among them. So this, this was what they yearned for. Um, so so they, they existed as a kingdom. They get sent into exile because of the failure to live as a kingdom of priests. In exile, they're still called to embody that mission. And then the, the, the promise is, is that they will now be given, there, there will be a new exodus. There will be a new covenant written. And, um, and so there's this very interesting thing that happens after Israel returns. They become a nation again, uh, but, then they're, but then they're conquered by... Um, uh, by what you know, what becomes kind of the the Greek Alexander Empire, um, they throw off that yoke for about a hundred years during the Maccabean revolt and the establishment of the Hasmonean dynasty. But then they're conquered by the Romans, and the Romans. So here comes here comes Saul. We know him as Paul, of course. But is, is Saul the Pharisee? comes on the scene and his political imagination is drenched in these terms: salvation to Israel. Um, was purely, uh, not purely, but but it, it understood almost exclusively in these political terms that Israel was oppressed by Rome. They were a, a laughing stock among the nations, and what God would do when God would finally keep His promises, God would perform a new Exodus. He would deliver deliver um, Israel out of Roman slavery. He would throw the Romans down. He would vindicate. Israel and judge the nations. That was the political expectation of, of what salvation meant for someone who was like a Pharisee. Now, it's really, really important that we understand that Pharisees were not the bad guys. They were the zealous 
guys. They were the, they were the ones that were most interested in making Israel great again, right? I mean, they were, um, they, so, so let me get into this just a little bit. Um, the Pharisee hope was that the God of Israel would fulfill his promises to set Israel free from oppression and restore the nation to its rightful place. Remember, God selected Israel out of all the nations of the world to be a blessing to the nations of the world. And and that required them, in their mind, to being set above the nations of the world to fulfill this vocation. Because... Paul was passionate about this hope, right? The vindication of Israel, the overthrow of oppression of Israel's enemies. The the fact that Israel in Paul's day was dominated by the Roman Empire was absolutely intolerable. Now, again, this is Tim Gombas, who does some great work on on how uh, Saul and Paul then differ in their political imaginations. Um, He said... uh, The desperate need to set the agenda for the Pharisees, this desperate need set the agenda for the Pharisees. As Saul read the um, scriptures of Israel, he understood that the nation had been sent into exile for unfaithfulness to God, for idolatry, for neglecting the Mosaic law and its practices, right? So the reason the Romans now ruled politically over Israel was because Israel had not been faithful to the covenant. It had not been faithful to embody the Mosaic law and all of its social practices of justice and compassion and worship. And so for him, if unfaithfulness to the law led them into exile, then renewed faithfulness to the law would absolutely, at a national level, right, the body politic, its fidelity to the law would now move God to act on behalf of Israel to deliver the nation from its Israel or from its enemies and bring about salvation. All right, so the idea, of course, is, uh, is if... If, you know, not being faithful to the law was the problem, then being faithful to the law, of course, was the solution. So as a Pharisee, Saul's primary goal was to bring about a renewed nation and to present to God a purified people. They were to, again, to be holy is the, is the word that was used. Zealous for the law, every bit as passionate um, about the details of the law as their forefathers were. And he was convinced that if, you know, the the nation would be obedient and the nation was pure, then God would move um, to deliver Israel politically. Now, again, they use salvation language for this, but it was new Exodus language. It was the idea that they would be um, renewed as a people and as a kingdom. So what Saul did, um, he... (laughs) Uh, and this was the Pharisee project. It was literally a national campaign for the honor of God in Israel. And so that's why they cared about things like Sabbath. There, we have some later rabbinical writings where some rabbis would say, listen, if all Israel would keep the Sabbath perfectly, the Messiah would come. And, and you can also see now why Messiah was thought by the Pharisees to be a, a political savior. Right? The, the expectation is that salvation would be political, therefore the Messiah would be political in order to accomplish the salvation that was inherently dealing with the, the nations of Israel or the nation of Israel versus the nation of the world, the, the nations of the world. Hello, speaking, trying, I'm trying English. And so 
you know, for Saul, purity, um, he was passionate for this. That's why Jesus gets into so much trouble with Pharisees. They had, what they would do is they would, in order, in their zeal to keep the law, they would fence the law in. That was their term. So, so if the law was, hey, do not sit in this particular chair, if that was like one of the 613 commandments, do not sit in this chair, they would add um, laws or regulations or commands that would be like, don't even get near the chair. Don't even be in the same room as the chair. Don't even look at the chair. And so growing up around the 613 commandments of the Torah were thousands of regulations and rules that were designed to keep the people holy. And so that's why Pharisees were so zealous about maintaining the Sabbath laws, but not just the general command of the Old Testament, but they created, I mean, dozens of categories about what you had to avoid on the Sabbath in order to keep it perfectly uh, or to keep it holy. They would, uh, they had meal rituals, uh, washing your hands, um, and Jesus runs afoul of, of a lot of this tradition. That's why he gets in trouble with them. He's not, he said himself, he came to fulfill uh, the Torah, um, not to abolish it. And, and so he's not abolishing Torah. He's actually showing what God's heart was in it, but in so doing, he, he, uh, he conflicts with the rules and the regulations, the traditions of the Pharisees. But you have to understand the traditions of the Pharisees were, uh, expressions of their zeal. Now, when I listen to some evangelicals talk these days, right around every election cycle, you have this almost apocalyptic fervor. We've got to win the Supreme court. We've got to win Congress. Uh, the nation is sliding into a moral abyss. We've got to recapture America. We've got to bring America back to God. And there's always the second chronicles, you know, if my people called by my name will humble themselves and cry out. I will rest. I mean, that was a national promise given to a national ethnic body called Israel that we now claim for America. There is the same passion and zeal. So one of the big, big parallels I want to draw is the zeal of the Pharisees for the righteousness of Israel in, in all of its good and badness is, is similar to, not, not equivalent to, because I don't think um, Americans see, uh, well, I think some do in old, you know, covenant kind of terms. But Anyway, I do think there's a parallel between how we are to understand the evangelical movement as a, as a political organization um, and how the Pharisees saw what was supposed to happen to Israel in political terms. What I mean by that is this idea to make, that, to make America great again, to bring America back to God. I mean, these, the idea is Americans, America is falling apart, and we're falling apart because we've kicked God out of schools, uh, we've kicked God out of uh, colleges, we've kicked God out of the arts, and now we are reaping the benefits of our secularism. And so the idea is, well, if, if the reason America is, is backsliding or heading downhill is because we've not been faithful to God, then, we, then in order to arrest uh, this downward slide, we must become faithful to God again, and God will then get will will then engage and bless us the way He's blessed our parents and grandparents. So it's the same logic that the Pharisees would use. If if disobedience got us into political trouble, then clearly obedience is what we need to do. In our case, twenty one centuries um, later, hey man, America used to be really really good, really strong, you know, foreign and abroad. 
Um, and what's happened? I mean, look at us. Look at what we accept. So a national disaster, um, a national disaster, <laughs> a natural disaster uh, hits, and immediately it's because of the gays, and it's because of the abortion providers, and it's because of, and 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 and, and I'm telling you, this these were exactly the ways in which the Pharisees held the things that were happening to Israel, exactly the same terms. So Paul had a belief about uh, uh, Jesus of Nazareth uh, before his, you know, visitation. Um, Saul the Pharisee uh, would have seen Jesus as a failed Messiah. First, because Jesus failed to enact the political program the Messiah was, was to inaugurate. Um, Rome, to be crucified um, by Rome, is the exact opposite of the kind of Messiah that Paul, Saul, would have been expecting, right? I mean, even in Galatians, Paul, you know, talks about his understanding of Torah. There's a passage in Deuteronomy that says, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. The idea would have been, um, Saul would have very much seen Jesus uh, as a failed Messiah, and God backing up Saul's verdict of Jesus because he allowed Jesus to die um, such an, an awful, awful, like uh, humiliating death. There's no way. And, and, and that's why this early Christian movement to him would have been a threat to the purity and to the righteousness and to the holiness of Israel. Listen, you guys, Saul would have said. Anybody proclaiming that this failed Messiah, that God has rendered, God has shown us he was a failed Messiah because he was put to death on a, on a Roman uh, cross. That was God's, ev the evidence that God had not favored Jesus was the fact that he was crucified in this way. Therefore, anyone claiming that this Jesus was Messiah is a threat to the Pharisee program of presenting Israel holy and pure back to God so that God would bless Israel. So it's not surprising that Saul and other Pharisees would persecute the fledgling Christian movement. When we first meet Saul, we meet him in the book of Acts, um, where uh, he's presiding over the, the murder of an early Christian named Stephen. And uh, in Luke, um, it, it, in Luke 7, it's almost like Saul is like the coat check guy. He's holding all the coats while the, the people stone Stephen to death. And in Acts 8, it says, you know, he heartily approves of this. And then a wave of persecution breaks out against the church. And so great was his zeal that he was, he was seeking permission to, to uh, haul Christians off to prison. Um, uh, in Acts it says he traveled around Judea breathing out threats and murder. And by his own words in Galatians, he was attempting to destroy the church of God. So what, and I hope this is making sense. It's a lot of talking for it not to make sense. Um, before his conversion then, Saul's political outlook uh, was one in which uh, salvation was primarily political. That the God of Israel was going to judge the nations, was going to free Israel from oppression, and was going to restore the kingdom to Israel. So the nations would be judged, Israel would be vindicated, and, and this would happen because of a renewed commitment by Israel as a national entity to covenant fidelity and faithfulness to God and to the Mosaic law. Now, Saul then embarked on a campaign 
of violence and coercion uh, against the enemies of this program. And there were two kinds of enemies that Saul would have seen. Christians, of course, but anybody in the land who wasn't righteous. So the, ta the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the sinners, so many of the people that were drawn to Jesus, all of them represented th the threat of God blessing, of God not blessing Israel, right? Because, because if God was going to bless them when they were a purified people, and these people clearly were not purified, you know, it's like, it's like a Christian leader today saying, well, this nat national, <laughs> natural, dang it, natural disaster happened because uh, you know, of the ACLU or whatever people you want to blame. It's the same logic that, that the sinners in Israel and the Christians were preventing God from blessing. So too here, it's the feminists and the gays and the whoever else are presenting God for, pre preventing God from blessing our nation as well. The issue is that even in, in Saul's zeal, there were some things that he did that were not in any way, shape, or form congruent with what God had intended Israel to be like, right? So, so yes, he wanted Israel to be freed from oppression. Yes, he wanted shalom restored. Yes, he wanted the people transformed into a just nation. But there were also elements of Saul's practice that, um, that are going to be markedly different once he meets the risen Jesus. So, for instance... Saul very much uh, kept cultural prejudices and, um, and, and, and very much carried an arrogant us versus them. It was Jew versus Gentile, Jew versus Greek. Um, Israel, in Saul's imagination, was to be uh, vindicated by God over against Israel's enemies. And the enemies, um, it, it, so it was, a very much, it was very much an us versus them. It was not a posture of love and serving the nations or blessing the nations like what was originally given to Abraham. Instead, it was, no, 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 we must judge the nations. Um, Saul, secondly, longed for God's vengeance against the foreign nations, right? So, so if the foreign nations are the problem. It's not, yes, Israel's internal holiness has an issue to play, but the, if we clean that up, then what's, what God is going to do is he's going he's to execute wrath upon the nations for their treatment of Israel. And he longed for that. He longed for judgment rather than redemption. He longed for judgment against his enemies rather than the redemption of his enemies. And then thirdly, um, the practice of his politics um, had become utterly corrupted. The ends totally justified the means. In, in, in some ways that you know evangelicals today kind of relate to, right? He was violently coercive towards others. Um, and, and he saw the, the problem as people that he had to solve. It wasn't God. God was not going to solve this. It was up to him. It was up to the Pharisees. It was up to their national program. That's what needed to happen. And the people who were enemies, the people who were sinners, the people who were not pure, the people who were threats to national purity had to be dealt with. And Paul had no hesitation to deal with them the way he thought the Old Testament gave you permission to, by putting them to death, or very least by putting them into prison. So he was not only coercing other Jews, but he was actually trying to force God's hand. He truly believed that uh, he could get God to send salvation and rescue. Now, next time, again, I, I don't know if you're able to follow this. All of this background to me is necessary to make some really, really important points about how 
how Paul's political imagination changes upon his meeting of the resurrected Christ. Um, I, so I think it's super important that we understand Paul's thought, um, Paul's hopes, Paul's expectations, the ways in which Jesus would have failed all of them. All of them. Not from, from not only who Jesus hung out with, um, to, to who he blessed, to who he included in his movement, to the failed, uh, failed political Messiah that he turned out to be. It, it makes total sense that um, what the, the Jews, the Pharisees were hoping for uh, would have been understood in political terms. And, and I see some of that same fervor among my evangelical friends. Um, and I see it from the, from the progressives and from the conservatives, right? You've got the, the pro-Trump crowd who, um, I mean, I've seen bumper stickers and I've talked to people who are like almost seen, they see Trump in the almost like divinely elected terms. And then, and then you've got the never Trump crowd that, that, that um, is so unbelievably antagonistic toward the Trump crowd. There's no listening. There's no exchanging of ideas. There's no figuring out how America can move forward together. There's no respect. There's no dialogue. There's no humility, even among our Christian brothers and sisters. So to me, there is, there is deep, 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 um, uh, di- a deep divorcing from um, what Jesus and I think how Paul would have intended us to be political in the world today and it happens on on both sides because um for the the trump people hey man trump getting trump in office was the goal getting a supreme court justice re remaking the judicial benches all throughout the country you know dealing with immigration blah 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 for folks on the other side it is literally we have to get trump out of here he is destroying our country and and i of course have opinions of my own on these things but is there a way to practice being political that Paul, the, the change from Saul the Pharisee to Paul the Apostle, I think will be incredibly um, illustrative about how it is that we are political today. So um, anyway, this is more of a like of a trilogy. This is the second part of a trilogy. It's just filling in some gaps, providing some color, but but trying to, to make a case that a lot of how we view things uh, today is very similar to the the hopes and dreams that the Pharisees had for Israel. Uh, obviously not perfectly analogous, but close enough that when we see Saul abandon those dreams for something else, we will see him practice politics in a completely different way. So my friends, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord shine his face upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance to you and may he give you peace in these days. Thank you for listening. And uh, as always, love would love to read your feedback or hear your feedback on this stuff. Thank you so much.